several visitors in the audience, and we're so glad that you're here with us. If you consider yourself a visitor, we, we hope you will allow us to introduce ourselves and, and chat with you and visit with you a little bit after service this morning. I'm glad to be here, and I hope you are too. This morning we'll be reading from the book of Romans chapter 8, and so I would invite your attention there. We'll have the majority of the verses on the screen, so you'll be able to follow along, but you might go ahead and grab a Bible or open your Bible application on your phone and and follow along if you like. Sometimes we have unrealistic expectations about what we think God's will is for our lives. I... uh, I can speak for myself, certainly, that uh, when I was of the age of some of the young people in the audience here today, that I, I was, I suppose, naive and, and had unrealistic expectations. I, I was surrounded by numerous examples of uh, wonderful Christian examples. Uh, and so I, I would look at those examples, I would look at those men and women and think, wow, they've got it figured out. They, they've got it all figured out, and, and that's how I want to be as a Christian. You know, it's not always that way. God's unique, most beloved, and only begotten Son entered this world in abject poverty. He accumulated no earthly possessions. He possessed no earthly dwelling that he could call his own home. And then he died a barbaric death. If we expect that God would never let bad things happen to good people, then we are ignoring the numerous examples in Scripture, like that of Joseph and Job and Jesus. You know, when people in our world acknowledge Jesus, they tend to dilute the image of our Lord and Master. They want to make the life of Christ something else. They want to make the life of Christ comfortable and convenient and clean. They compose this alternate reality of Jesus instead of accepting the reality of who Jesus truly is. Do we sanitize the life of Christ in that way? As we investigate Romans 8 and as we consider the story of Jesus as the background and as we consider what we study this morning, we discover something altogether different. You know, it was beneath the starry sky of Bethlehem's plain that the only begotten Son of God entered a cold and dirty, filthy stable, fit only for beasts, and not fit for the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus entered a world that was broken, that was filthy, that was sinful. He was surrounded by a hostile Roman Empire. You see, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the only potentate, entered our earthly human history in the groans of suffering. We'll be reading about that this morning in Romans 8. He lived that way, and he died that way. It was through the groans of this life that the Christ came to reveal God's glory that is made possible through God's grace. And so if you remember anything this morning, I want you to remember the three words that you see on the screen. Groans, grace, and glory. And the Apostle Paul writes a lot about that specifically in our focus chapter this morning. We must realize that God's purpose for us in this life is not to make us comfortable. Jesus' birth, His life, His death, 
His resurrection and ascension demonstrate all of that. That God's real purpose for me and for you can be summarized this way. Let me invite you to the book of Romans this morning, chapter number 8. I want to begin in verse number 18, and I want to read through the end of the chapter. So we'll read this text first this morning. Romans, the 8th chapter, beginning in verse number 18. The Bible says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, or that is to say the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called... Them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake... We are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I appreciate the prayer on my behalf this morning, Brother Clyde. I appreciate the encouragement that I received from several of you this morning. Appreciate that very much. I hope that the message this morning encourages you. I want to present a few main points this morning, starting with what we see here in verses 18 and 19. And so we read these two verses. And what Paul is talking about here is suffering and groaning. That's how I would summarize that. So what is all this suffering and groaning about? You know, as I mentioned a moment ago, I thought as, as Christians, or at least I once thought as a, as a Christian, we didn't have to suffer. We didn't have to groan through life. I thought life was supposed to be a whole lot easier. John Smith once wrote that the attitude towards suffering has to do with our willingness to accept suffering as an essential part of God's will. Is that where we are today in our Christian walk of life? Do we accept that as the will of God, that suffering is a part of life and not just anybody's life, not just someone who lives in the world, as we might say, but a part of the Christian life? Do we share that attitude towards suffering? Hopefully, what comes through the message this morning is not just suffering and, oh, how how distressed we are and, and the things that we go through, but the reasons for that suffering, the reasons for that groaning, hopefully will come through the message this morning. And what we see is the purpose and the ultimate goal for each of us as Christians. And the blessings that the Apostle Paul mentions here, he enumerates them, he lists them. We'll be looking at those this morning. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, oh my word, why would I ever want to be a Christian? He's talking about suffering. This guy's a Christian and he's talking about suffering and groaning. Why would I ever want to join the kingdom of Christ? Hopefully what will come through is what the Apostle Paul writes here, all these enumerated blessings, this list of blessings that he talks about. The Apostle Paul, writing with perhaps his personal tribulation in mind, assures the Christians here in Rome, and and we'll look at some other verses in a moment, that he assures those Christians as well, that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17. The Jews wanted to kill Paul, literally. There were people who, there were groups of men, 40 some odd men, take an oath that they want to do him in, that they want to kill him. They want to end his life. We want to end the influence in the life of Paul. Paul knew that. Paul had to escape more than once from those plots against him. And several times we read of in Scripture the Holy Spirit intimating to the Apostle Paul, Paul, get ready, you're about to suffer some hardships. At one point we can read in Scripture a lengthy list of the suffering and the groanings that the Apostle Paul went through. And he talks about those in several places. He talks about afflictions, real afflictions. He talks about suffering, real suffering. He talks about persecution, real persecution. And Apostle Paul talks about that a lot. The Apostle Paul writes here in the book of Romans chapter 8 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the sufferings that you and I sometimes experience in this life, what we go through in this life, 
in the grand scheme of things, are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. And brethren, that's not easy to live out. And I think we understand that. It's easy to say, but very difficult to do. Yes, we should look beyond our own suffering and look ahead to the goal that we read about in the book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we should be doing. That's where we should be headed. That's what we should be concentrated on. And so I love the comments this morning from our brother who encourages us to think heaven-bound, to look heavenward, and rightly so. And so we see that here in the Bible in Philippians 3 and 14. The shadows of this life are fleeting. They may not seem like it. As a young person, as some of you are, however you want to consider yourself young, the shadows of this life are fleeting. They're passing. And in comparison, they're really like flea bites to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Yes, they gnaw on us. Yes, they bother us. Yes, we have to suffer through them. But we should let the glory of the Father captivate us. We should let the glory of the Father capture our attention, even during times of suffering. But we spend so much of our time consumed by, focused on, worried about, and even fearing the groans of this life. And sometimes, sometimes we lose sight of what awaits us. Why can't we cast our sight on the goal, on the prize? Why can't we cast our sight away from the groans and set our sights on the glory that we read about here in Romans 8 and elsewhere? Why can't we focus on that goal? Was all oh, that's easy to say. It's really easy for you to say, right? You don't know what I'm going through. Zola, you just don't get it. You don't know what I'm going through. I have serious financial difficulties right now. I've been in and out of the hospital. I've had several follow-up doctor's visits. The bills have piled up. And I won't have enough money to make it to the end of the month. I can't focus on the future because I'm concerned about what I'm dealing with right now, in this moment. And I feel like I'm going under. So yes, Zoel, it's easy to say that we must not lose sight of the goal, but it's another thing to live it. Romans 8 and 19 talks about this earnest expectation. Paul says an earnest expectation. You know what that means? That refers to a longing, and not just any longing, but an anxious longing. It comes from three Greek words that suggest waiting with your head raised, looking at the horizon line, expecting to see someone coming your direction. That's what Paul writes about there in Romans 8 and 19. In these few verses here, we read about more groaning. We read those verses this morning. I want to give you a couple of definitions of groaning. It's not really a word we use in the 21st century. What in the world does this mean? What am I, what am I supposed to think when I think of this word groan or groaning? And so from Strong's exhaustive concordance, we can see that it simply means to make in straits. When we say, when we use that expression, I'm in dire straits, that's where we take that. That means to sigh. That means to, to pray inaudibly. But you're not just praying, 
inaudibly, you're praying inaudibly with grief, with sighing, with a heavy heart. We might look to Thayer's Greek lexicon for a definition. Something similar we find there. Other scriptures that we could turn to. We might look to another dictionary for definitions. To utter a deep moan indicative of pain, grief, or annoyance. To make a harsh sound under sudden or prolonged strain. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that, Zoe. Sure, I've been under prolonged strain. Paul here in these verses, verses 20 to 25 in Romans 8, he writes that the entire world groans. This is not some individualistic phenomenon. The world groans, though, because the world is in bondage to decay and to death, to destruction. We know the world is falling apart at at its seams. But he also says that Christians groan too. And in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse number 2, the Apostle Paul writes, this is one of the reasons why we groan. This is one of the reasons why we're in dire straits. Because we are separated, physically speaking, not spiritually, but physically separated from our heavenly reward, from our heavenly home, from our heavenly Father. And so Paul writes here, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Sometimes, brethren, we want this life to be over. We're ready. Let's go. I know there's something far better awaiting me, and I am ready for that blessing. Please, Lord, take me now. There are some times when we truly feel like that. We don't want to go through the pain anymore. We don't want to see a loved one go through pain anymore. We're ready. We want it to be over. And so maybe that's why we groan. Maybe that's our focus when we, for whatever reason, cannot cannot articulate how we feel. Maybe this is why, the Apostle Paul says. We realize this as Christians. We know there's a heavenly reward, a heavenly home, and that's why we groan. Or maybe, maybe you groan for other reasons. Maybe you were hit with a lawsuit, an unexpected lawsuit. Maybe you're facing bankruptcy. Maybe you're facing... A messy divorce. Brethren, these are real-world scenarios. Maybe if you're still in school, maybe you had the worst semester of your academic career and you're facing academic probation. And I, I can tell you, not from personal experience, but that's really, uh, that's, that, that can really happen. Or maybe you're facing illness or disease, something along those lines. Maybe it's not you that's going through some suffering. Maybe you're having to watch a child suffer physically in a hospital. You're not sure if the child's going to make it. Maybe you're you're watching some other loved one suffer, and you want to take that away. There are many reasons that we might groan. I'll tell you that the beginning of my semester was rough. So many of you know I I teach at a, a, a college and Typically, the semesters begin with a lot of encouragement. Typically, this semester was very different. So our district president basically fired 10 people. 10 people, which is is quite a few. You know, for the last couple of years during the COVID pandemic, 
the district president was always touting, all, always uh, boasting about, oh, we didn't have to fire a single person. Nobody's going to lose his or her job. Everybody's squared away. Let's keep up the good work. You know how that goes. And then this semester, bam, 10 of you, can, gone, expelled, get out of here. And so basically they, they say it in, in, of course, a very uh, polite way. Um, and, and they tell them, they brought them all in together, apparently. I was not there. Uh, but they brought them all in together and said, we're not going to renew your contract for the following semester, which is just a, a very, you know, very polite way of saying you're fired. And so that was completely unexpected. For those of us in the wings, for those of us that that could have been me, I don't know how he made his selection about that, that group of 10 being, being removed uh, from, from the college campus, why, why he fired them, I, I, I have no idea what his reasoning was. wasn't made privy to that. But for those of us on the periphery of that, seeing that from outside, where the morale is low. And so that's, that's a shock. And so, uh-oh, is my job next? And so there are many ways, brothers and sisters, that we might groan in this life, most of which happens unexpectedly. And what happens when we experience this suffering and these groanings? How are we Christians going to deal with these situations? I know how the world deals. You do too. We, we see it on the nightly news. People descend into substance abuse and, and all manner of, of, of ill-fated uh, antidotes to their problems. And they compound their, their problems and make everything worse. But how are we as Christians going to deal with these situations? Hopefully we don't have to experience anything on that list. But if you do, how do we deal with it? You know, one of the first things I was taught, even before I became a Christian, and I'm seeing this from all the examples surrounding me, the first thing we're taught is to pray. That's what we as Christians do, right? We go to God in prayer. Not just when we have a bad day, or a bad month, or a bad decade, we go to God in prayer. That's what we're taught. But what if we do not know how to proceed in prayer? What if we struggle to know exactly what we should be praying for? The Apostle Paul mentions this in the middle of verse number 26. And so he says, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought or as we should. When we go through the groans of this life in our human weakness, in our human frailty, in the suffering that we we seemingly endure, we often lack clarity. And I know that's the case for me sometimes. We lack clarity of vision. We lack clarity of purpose. Everything starts to get fuzzy. Everything seems foggy and out of focus. We don't understand the will of God in all of that. When Amanda was ill, what am I supposed to think? I thought we were living the way you wanted us to live, God. What did I do so wrong that now I have to watch my sweet bride suffer? What did she do? So we're tempted to think in these terms. We don't understand the will of God in all of this. In our times of groaning and suffering, we're at a loss. We're puzzled. We're confused. We're perplexed. We might wonder, God, what are you doing here? We might wonder, how am I supposed to pray 
in this situation. The Bible assures us that this is not an individual phenomenon. The Bible says very clearly, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. That's plural, brethren. This can happen to any of us. It might have happened to all of us at one time or another in our lives. Have you ever not known what to say? Have you? Please tell me I'm not alone in this. Have you ever not known how to proceed in prayer to our Heavenly Father? You know, we should acknowledge that this situation can happen to anyone. Paul says that assuredly. And so, in many ways, that's okay. I'm not talking about public prayer so much as I'm emphasizing individual prayer here. I mean, there's no age restriction attached. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. This still might affect you. What impact does this inability to pray have on you? I mean, if you've ever had to experience this, as I have had to experience this before, there, there are results like doubt and fear and anxiety. <gasps> Why can't I get the words out? You know, the inability to pray can cause frustration and even resentment. We might think, you know, I've been a Christian for so long. Some of you have been Christians for literally decades I've been praying regularly all these years, and yet these challenges and these struggles and this suffering negatively influences our ability to communicate with our Father in heaven. Such a feeling is horrible. It's awful. In sickness, not being able to pray. In struggles with finances, not being able to pray. Losing a job and not being able to pray. Perhaps praying repetitively because we cannot think of anything else or we cannot think of any other way to articulate our needs, our desires, our gratitude even. And this, is, this situation is especially frustrating for me. I mean, I make my living with words. I literally teach people how to use the English language to communicate. I have a master's degree in English, in English literature. So conversing is what I do. So, yes, it's especially frustrating for me when I have to encounter such a situation like I've had to in the past. So any inability to pray, even a momentary inability, affects me deeply. So when I'm ready to pray and I can't find the words, I feel disheartened. I feel like a failure, really. However, however, in these moments, praise God that we have someone to intercede for us. We read those verses a moment ago, verses 26 and 27, and so what Paul says here is that we have an intercessor. We have someone to intercede on our behalf with groanings, Paul writes, which cannot be uttered. Consider the groaning of the Holy Spirit for just a moment. What we see emerging from the groans of the Holy Spirit is the grace of God. God knew that we would have moments where we could not physically get the words out, and God has made a way for for our prayers still to be heard. Praise God for that. Of course, God extends His grace through Jesus Christ. We understand that. We understand that God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, as Paul writes in Romans 8 and 3. 
Indeed, Jesus Christ is the unique mediator between God and humanity. And Jesus secures our salvation. Through Jesus, God forgives us of our sins. But God's grace not only is intended to extend forgiveness, but also is aimed to change the person. God does not forgive us just so that we can go on our merry way. God wants to forgive you of your past and to motivate you and inspire you by the power of that forgiveness to transform you from the person you once were to the person that God wants you to become. He does want you to change. And that is why God, through Jesus Christ, sent His Spirit to you and to me as Christians. And brethren, this is something the world cannot understand because the world does not have the Spirit in their lives. As if Jesus wasn't enough already. And as if the forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life secured by Jesus weren't enough already. God gives us a free gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit. We read about that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. The Apostle Peter says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so the Spirit then intercedes for us in the realm of sanctification, making us holy and holier, giving us a holy purpose about what God's will is for our lives and giving us clarity and purpose as to why we live on this earth. Romans 8 and 26 assures us that the Holy Spirit intercedes, helps us in these moments. When we don't know how to pray as we want or as we should be praying, The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with those very groanings. And the Holy Spirit takes those groanings to God our Father. The Holy Spirit knows when we suffer. He knows when we groan. The Holy Spirit knows when you are hurting. He knows when you are tempted. He knows when you're puzzled and confused. The Holy Spirit knows when you're struggling with doubt. He knows that. The Holy Spirit knows what we cannot articulate, and the Holy Spirit joins in with those groanings, taking them to God. Paul's mention of weakness, or as he writes, infirmity, probably has a a broader reference to the many aspects of human weakness that he's been discussing in the previous chapters in the book of Romans. But when it comes to prayer, he affirms that sometimes we don't even know what we should be praying about or praying for or what the content of our prayers should actually be. I mean, do we know? I mean, do we really know the real needs of our own hearts? Do we know the needs of the hearts of others? And do we know the will of God in those matters? Probably not. So when we don't know what to pray for in a specific situation, the Holy Spirit takes those inarticulate groans, the groans of your heart, the groans of my heart, and filters all of that according to the perfect will of God for our lives. The Holy Spirit's intercession is is always in conjunction with, always in perfect harmony with the will of God. And we read that in Romans 8 and 27. And so as we approach verses 31 through 39, we have an assurance here, brethren, that these weaknesses, that this suffering does not separate us from God's love. 
And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder sometimes. That even if I, for whatever reason, cannot articulate and, and compose uh, an articulate prayer to my Heavenly Father, that, that that does not separate me from His love. It's a good reminder. And so we read those verses this morning. I want to draw your attention, though, to verse number 36 and emphasize that just for a moment, if we can isolate that verse just for a moment. And so what you might know already is that the Apostle Paul technically is quoting from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 44. And so you might let your fingers wander back to Psalm 44 this morning. We're not going to take the time to read it. The verses are not there on the screen But Paul makes a wonderful parallel, a wonderful analogy in chapter 8 to what the Israelites had to deal with as recorded in Psalm chapter 44. The use of that chapter in the book of Psalms reminds readers that suffering has always been the lot of the righteous. In Psalm 44, what many people call a national lament, the nation really is pouring out its complaint to God. They're losing a war, a literal war, mind you. Their enemies have encamped around them. They're being slaughtered all over the place, and they have no no idea why. Why isn't God fighting for us? He's fought for our forefathers before. Why isn't God fighting for us now? They make the case in Psalm 44, specifically stating, God, we did not abandon you. God, we did not abandon our faith in you. God, we still trust you. We've remained faithful. Isn't that how we think sometimes? Paul does not just quote a verse from the psalm, but really, he does. He quotes that verse, as we see here in verse 36, but he weaves that argument. He weaves that narrative into all of Romans chapter 8. And so if we look at those two chapters side by side and we summarize them, we can see how similar they are. Thousands of years ago, even before... The chapter in Psalm was recorded for posterity. We have a nation of God's people suffering, groaning, waiting for divine deliverance. In that chapter, we read that they're so troubled. They're troubled by the suffering. They're frustrated because they don't know. They don't know the outcome of all this. They're frustrated by not being able to see what's going to happen. They cannot predict the future. They don't know how the suffering is going to end. And they keep asking, when will this end? When will this battle be over? When will my struggles be over? Something else we see in Psalm 44, as we do see in Romans 8, is is they're crying out to God. And so, yes, that's recorded for us in Psalm 44. They're seeking Him. They're seeking help in a time of need. They're looking for an intervention. They want God's assistance. And then at the very end of Psalm 44, we see it recorded for us that despite all of that or in spite of all of that, they're still convinced of God's fidelity, His faithfulness. They still are confident in His mercy and His power and His ability and in His salvation. God remains true and faithful and constant. In Romans 8, we might, we might summarize this chapter similarly. We see from verse 18 
suffering and groaning. And then in verse 19, this earnest expectation. We're longing, yearning for deliverance. We've been going through this so long, or at least it seems like that. When Amanda and I dealt with with her illness twice, we thought after the first couple of years, all right, God healed her, nailed it, let's move on with our life, right? And a couple years later, nope, we're back to square one. And literally, we, we repeat the process. And so there's this earnest expectation, as Paul writes in Romans 8 and 19, this yearning, this this desire for deliverance. I want it to be over. Secondly, we see here in Romans 8, we've looked at it, that sometimes we just don't know how we need to pray. We don't know how to fashion our prayers in the best way. We don't know the, the word order or the words to use. And we're frustrated by not knowing how to do that, not knowing what to pray for. And we're thinking, when will this be over? When will my struggle end finally? We see, number three, God intervenes on our behalf through the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's intercession when we do not know what to pray for. And finally, as we see in the conclusion of of Romans chapter 8, we can still have a confidence. We can still be confident that our suffering does not separate us. That our momentary inability to pray does not separate us from God's love, our Father. God remains constant. He remains committed. He remains faithful and ever-present in times of need. So in the end, the suffering that we talk about, the, the momentary inability to pray as we talk about, does not separate us from God's love. And we can be confident in that. We read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 5, let your conversation be, your your life, your manner of living, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. And then notice at the very end he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Brethren, that's a promise from our Father. Jesus himself promised a comforter. We read of this in the book of John, chapter 14 and verse 18. Jesus, this is what Jesus says. Jesus is preparing his disciples, even though they seemingly didn't understand everything. Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave. I'm about to go. But I will not leave you comfortless. Jesus says, I will come to you. And so Jesus promises us a comforter. We read about that comforter, the Holy Spirit, this morning in Romans 8. Jesus promised that. We have received that if we have been baptized into Jesus. So naturally, we should feel the love of God because of the Holy Spirit's intervention. We should have a peace. We should. A peace that passes all understanding that we read about in Scripture. A peace, really, that only Christians can feel. A peace that really only Christians can know. Knowing that through all the trials, all the pressure, all the struggles, all the worries, all the illness, that nothing, absolutely none of that, compares to the the love that God has for us and to the eternal weight of glory awaiting us. Finally, Paul raises the question of any conceivable contradiction between Christ's love for us and our suffering. And his point is that suffering cannot separate us from God's love. 
Paul basically says that separation through suffering is no more feasible, no more thinkable, no more plausible than the idea that the Father ceased loving the Son through the agony on the cross that we heard during communion this morning. It all has a purpose. Our suffering is a part of our identification with Christ. We read this morning in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit groans and that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us through those groans. What does all this mean? This means that the Holy Spirit does beseech the Father on our behalf to use the groans of your life, to use the groans of my life, to grow us closer to Him. Maybe the woes and the worries don't disappear. Okay? Maybe, maybe the suffering remains. The, that exhaustion from all that suffering and all that groaning sets in and compounds the problem. And then, then now we have to contend with that old devil because we're in a weakened state. And here comes old Satan and uses those moments of weakness and suffering to tempt us and to further weaken us. Brethren, it's not a question of whether or not we're going to groan. We all groan in this life. Throughout this chapter in Romans, the Apostle Paul assures us that we will participate in the suffering and the groans of this life. But the question is not, will we? The question we should be asking is, how am I going to groan? How am I going to go through this? So the question I would ask you this morning is, are you going to groan away from God? Or will you groan toward God? Zoel, what do you mean? If I groan away from God, the outcome is negative and diminishing. I have no Holy Spirit to intervene for me apart from God. I have no Jesus to intercede for me apart from God. I have no eternal glory waiting for me apart from God. That's negative. That's diminishing if I groan away from God. But if I groan toward God, the outcome is positive and encouraging. If I groan as a Christian, I can grow through that weakness. I can grow through that trial. I can overcome that temptation with the help of God. Brethren, we grow through what we go through in this life. You know, I've mentioned Amanda's illness. Sorry to mention it again. But we went through it twice. And it was one lengthy set of years there. And that first time, we thought we licked it. We thought we nailed it. God healed her, undoubtedly. And that first go-around was awkward. It, it, was, it was frustrating. It was defeating. A lot of emotions I felt during all of that. And, of course, she did too. And so, okay, we're done, and now we move on, and then we come back to that. A couple years later, it was no less defeating. I think in many ways it was maybe even more devastating because we thought this was over, and here we are again. But we grew through that, she and I. We can grow through those unfortunate moments of life. We can, we can groan toward God. <clears throat> we read in verses 28 through 30 a moment ago 
about how all things work together for good, right? To them that love God. And so we read those verses. In verse number 29, we see what the Apostle Paul writes. God's will for us is to grow. Paul says to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the purpose of all this. Well, I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. But we are trying to be more like Christ each and every day. And so God's will for us is to grow through all of this, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And even Jesus himself grew through suffering. We see proof of this in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 5. This is speaking about Jesus. Though he were a son, the only begotten son of God, who was there at the creation, who confined himself to a nine-month gestation period and then lived a very humble existence on this planet, the Son of God, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So like Jesus, it is through suffering that we are brought to a better state, that we are brought to glory, as the Bible says. Our reason for being here, at least one of the reasons, one of our purposes for being on this earth is to reveal God's glory. There are many ways God reveals His glory. He reveals His glory through creation. He reveals His glory through the written Word of God. But one of the reasons for our being here is to reveal God's glory. And sometimes, sometimes, this occurs through our suffering. I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. The Bible says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Are you with me this morning? But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. But he doesn't stop there. He says that ye may be able to bear it, to endure it, to strain through it, to groan through it. Many people read this verse in a way that suggests God is the genie in the bottle and all you have to do is pray to Him and you're dunsky, right? All you have to do is pray to God and He's going to take this away and He's going to give you this. And we hear a lot of this in our society. The text here in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 does not say that. God does not always take away the struggles or... Sometimes he'll take it away, and then here you go, round two. Sometimes God allows us to struggle and suffer. It does not mean that God will, will, will remove the suffering. It does not mean that you will escape that suffering or that struggle. Instead, as we read here at the very end of verse 13, instead, God makes a way. God made a way for us to endure it, to put up with it, to strain through it. And you might be thinking, but why? What's the purpose in all of this? My response to that, the word of God's response to that is to refine us, to mold us, to grow us into what? God gives us his grace, brethren, through the groans of this life to bring us to glory. That's the purpose. Read with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 12. The Bible says, if we suffer, that's a conditional expression. 
We have to know that. It doesn't say we shall, we shall reign with him without suffering. It says, no, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we suffer with him, if we suffer, we will also reign with him. And so from Romans chapter 8, what we can take away from this is that, yes, we have at least two intercessors on our behalf. Jesus Christ, our mediator, and the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us. Something else that we've not mentioned this morning is that of our church family. And I know when there were times, I know there were times Amanda did not know exactly how to pray as she wanted to, that she thought was, was worthy of a prayer. And so we could pray together. And then there were other times when she couldn't pray, but she could turn to her church family. And they would pray with her and for her. And so if you're sitting in the audience this morning and you're thinking, why would I ever want to be a Christian? Hopefully, you're, you're writing a list of all the benefits of being a Christian. No, let's not be naive. This, this is not roses and sunshine all the time. But God is there for us. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus. We have church family. And we can be assured at the end of Romans chapter 8 that God still loves us and that nothing will separate us from God's love. The process of God's working out His purpose for us is laid out here in verse number 30 in Romans chapter 8. He says, predestined, called, justified, and that's not all. He says glorified. And if you notice there in verse number 30, those four words are all written, those four verbs are all written in the past tense to stress the certainty of fulfillment. It's a done deal, is what the writer says. Because he that is God who has begun a good work will complete it. In Christ Jesus we stand, brethren, but we stand because God has a purpose for us And that purpose will carry us through to glory. Paul's conclusion of this discussion is that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand in our way? At the time, yes, it seems like everything is bombarding me. Satan breathing down my neck. Struggles in my life. Not sure if I'm going to have a job. God has not made empty promises, though. He's not started something that he's unable to finish. No. He's he's fully aware of our sins and our failures, and he's acted past tense. It was a done deal. And what he's done in Christ and through the Spirit constitutes all the proof we need that glory will be ours someday. If you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, we invite you to do that this morning. The watery grave of baptism awaits you. You can be baptized into Christ, rise from that watery grave a new creature, and become a Christian, and know that you have Jesus, and know that you have the Holy Spirit interceding for you as well, that God is for you. If there's one here today who is a Christian, and who needs the prayers of the church, if you need us to pray with you and for you, we are ready to do that. The prayer of a righteous person avails much, as as James tells us in Scripture. 
And so please come forward, sit on one of the front pews, and someone will assist you as we stand and as we sing.